0: Won his spurs, a man who speaks the tongue of Barsoom. Kaor, greetings. A man certainly fit to polish the teeth of his grandmother, Sorak, or uh, cat, Eric, how is the past, present, and future there in Mexico? Okay.
1: Kaor to you two. We're here today at Life Death Sci Fi to visit Barsoom with the Princess of Mars. Edgar Rice Burroughs has given a vision of what it was like in 1911 to think about what it would be like to go to Mars.
0: Yeah, what, what an imagination. Good adventure. I, yeah, I, loved, it.
1: It. Yeah. I, I loved it. I loved I, it. I like all of these kinds of outrageous, over-the-top, fun kind of adventures during the story. I think probably thousands of Martians perished in battles that
0: ensued. Lots of battles, lots of romance, a uh, version of romance. Tension. tension, tension. But at the end, there was an egg. They laid an egg. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> the book was not an egg. This, this was good fun. I a nice reprieve from its so fantastical and uh, in that way maybe a nice escape for me it was a lot of escapism from the world today and and so many of the other works that we read in season one dystopian and dark and had me worried about this planet this was a nice escape to another planet yeah
1: Uh, a pulp fiction beach read one of those stick in your back pocket paperbacks that is probably going to last forever
0: Should we talk about how he gets to Mars? Because that's interesting. What do you think?
1: I was with my class on a field trip, hiking up, it seemed vertical to me, but I'm sure it wasn't, a hill to get to the Bat Cave. And then I had to turn and squeeze through to get in. And by that time, my palms are sweating. I'm I'm just trying not to breathe in too much of the guano fumes. That's where I was when uh, John Carter was escaping his uh, pursuers and entering the cave of transition. I don't know what we call this cave. He was looking for gold, too, but he was escaping at that point.
0: We find John Carter, our our protagonist there. This is not the very beginning, but it's the beginning of the manuscript that he left for his nephew. So Uncle Jack here, yeah. John Carter is in Arizona with his friend, a fellow prospector and fleeing some Native Americans there. While they're in pursuit, he tries to find refuge in this cave. And as he enters this cave, he he becomes sleepy. And he he looks back for a second. He sees that these indigenous kind of group, he he looks back and they stop and they won't go in, which he finds peculiar. In a few moments, he begins to fall asleep and wakes up in what turns out to be Barsoom or Mars. Not my favorite plot device, I'll say. Probably of all the things, I don't have a lot of criticisms of this. I think it was good. Like I said, good fun. Didn't love that because it just conjures up the whole it was all a dream kind of idea for me. Well, obviously, a cave as an archetype, a point of birth or rebirth, a, a threshold of this transition into becoming and experiencing something else. Like, I'm all for it. That's great. But just falling just, asleep and waking oh, 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 asleep.
1: oh, okay. So just falling asleep. Yeah.
0: You could go with uh,
1: H.G. Wells and just get uh, shot out of a cannon. That was his moonshot. All of these authors of science fiction, early authors, have these fantastical ways to get to the places that they need to get to to develop their story. And, yeah, okay, falling asleep in a cave is a little lame, but I think later on, and I'm guessing later on in the uh, next volumes, this will
0: be revealed. I think that's the question, and we'll probably touch on the movie now and again, which so terrible. But in the movie, you get a little okay, bit... But- I, I disagree. I, I thought it
1: was good good eye candy, good fun. No. Oh, and by the way, while we're talking about this, Dejah Thoris in the movie was dressed. She was barely dressed, okay? And she had the, the bling on it and covering those parts that needed to be covered for the, the movie. I was watching YouTube today, this morning, about photographs from this same period that are black and whites, of famous people. They are colorized then, right in front of you. They develop the colorization. And Mata Hari, who was an amazing character, person, her picture, she could have been playing Daja Thor, Thoras, hmm. because she was dressed in the same kind of thing. And then I saw another entertainer, dressed in the same kind of outfit. Here's this author who has obviously seen these characters. There's some influence
0: there. Did they choose someone who fit the image that I guess many of us would have had? Because to me, it didn't work. That was not how I pictured her, nor did it match her character from the book. In the film version, Deja Thoris is almost like She-Ra. And I, I like that. I thought that was awesome. See, I I think that would be cool, but to me, it's not. It's not the same. It's different than the book. I was noticing when it was produced, and it's 2012. The film, right, comes out in 2012. It's part of this transition into empowering women more in films. So I get that, right? I'm an advocate for that. I support that idea. I thought she had a different kind of strength in the book. And so, even though in the book it is a damsel in distress story in a way that the movie is not, the book is definitely a damsel in distress. I don't know, the word distress there implies some sort of helplessness or weakness. And I felt like she had a lot of, in the book, quite a bit of strength. And held herself quite well. In my mind, I was picturing someone more like a Wonder Woman, Amazonian type in my head, and yet not the warrior, minus all the warrior stuff, if that makes sense. (laughs) In the book, there's no indication that she would go into any kind of battle or fight. It's not there at all.
1: Her battles were with words. Yeah, exactly. John Carter in the shadows was watching her just be courageous.
0: So her power came with her integrity or strength and her sense of maybe selflessness or willingness Yeah, to- nobility says <laughs> noble, stoic kind of type. I'm not a warrior in that sense only through like you said, through words and maybe politics. I don't know, I just didn't like that that change in the film version. Because it just makes it such a different plot to not have so much of his motivation in the book of Carter's is about trying to save her and return her to her kingdom. Um, It's
1: amazing what a hundred years of social change will do to a story. That story was captured again at a hundred years and somebody said, we can do this and we need these changes though.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it actually reminds me of uh, something I was just listening to yesterday. It's uh, another podcast. It's Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Revisionist History. And he's doing a series right now on The Little Mermaid. And he was talking about all all the problems with the the Disney version of The Little Mermaid compared to the older, because they they changed things, right, compared to the older one. And, And the older one is super dark. And Disney attempted to make... This version that was has a happy ending and all this. But in the end, it's so problematic because of a number of reasons. But portrayals of femininity and masculinity, but also this sort of idea of the villain. Ariel? Oh, no, that. But is she like a squid or octopus-like character or something? But she creates this contract that's binding, but it creates it with this minor <laughs> who's not of age. And it's this all-binding contract. The only way to destroy the contract is for her father to kill her. Of course, he impales her with his this ship. There's this whole phallic image of this male violently killing the woman who's created the contract for the daughter who could escape. You're right. It's interesting how things uh, change like yeah, that. the context begins to affect the, I guess, the re envisioning of something in a way. You can
1: also look at this Mars thing, which is our theme, which is life death sci fi stuff theme for this season. Mars now with our technology is totally different. Whereas John Carter got his kind of superpowers from the atmosphere of being on Mars uh, made him different than others. Now we have our vehicle. We can land on Mars. People will soon land on Mars. And our movies are like that, too. Our, our books are, are
0: like that, too. We can talk subgenre. We're talking about a little bit of fantasy, a lot of sci-fi. And To me, this is so much more fantasy than it is. Oh, sub-genre. no, I agree with
1: that. I, I agree with that. More fantasy than sci-fi. There are bits and pieces of it
0: that I wasn't expecting when I was reading. That. This is soft sci-fi, like Jello. This is jiggly, uh, jiggly. It's not hard sci-fi here. I All think right.
1: you just invented a new brand of
0: Jello sci-fi. What would that taste I like? Red dirt. Definitely, this would be red, red cherry. Um, green Jello. We get a lot of colors in this book for sure. Well, a genre that Burroughs really, I think, invented the planetary romance. The subgenre of the sword and planet. So it follows the tradition of the sword and like the knight's tales, the sword and the dragon. There's some hero who's got a sword in medieval type stories. Justice. Yeah. Often a damsel in distress. And here he's taken the elements of that and transported that to another planet, which is part of what makes it so fun, but also a bit of fantasy so much fantasy there what are our sci-fi elements here that kind of ground it in in sci-fi
1: okay i don't think this is true i I don't think if we landed on mars i don't think i could jump around like john carter but that was in 1911 that was a an okay premise because we maybe we learn more about the moon and there's not that gravity on the moon so why wouldn't that be the same way with mars okay there's a little bit there Definitely on the terraforming, they have their their terraforming building that uh, supplies air for the whole planet, which is, I I thought, a pretty interesting part of the story. They had, I don't know if this is sci-fi, it is a little sci-fi, the bullets that they had for their gun were created to explode in a different way than
0: our munitions here. They had different kinds of munitions for that. This- let's Yeah, let's dig into that. You listed off some sci-fi elements and devices. We always have fun tracking those. At least I do. And so two things you mentioned there. One, I think they're radium bullets. So they have these, you know, a long history of all these battles. There have been some warring states, which is another medieval-like element here. These warring states. Yes. They have these weapons that shoot these radium bullets. And when they battle at night, they're shooting these bullets and when they're exposed to daylight, they explode. This is another element. They have the fourth ray or the seventh ray.
1: I can't remember what it is. Eighth, the different, eight yeah. the eighth ray. They have different rays coming out of the spectrum that we know about. But Burroughs invented a couple extra. And these rays are the ones that really make a difference. Um, yeah,
0: they're able to, what, harness those or control those so they can fly their ships.
1: Fly their ships. It's like an energy source, right?
0: Yeah. I guess that falls into the soft sci-fi because the science there doesn't hold up based on our, our knowledge today. So uh, it's jiggly. <laughs> yeah. And just to go back to the terraforming moment, because we find out two-thirds of the way through, John is making his way to... Save his woman. He stumbles across one of these atmosphere plants. I envision this like something out of Game of Thrones. And I I meant to look up the the name of that tower, but there's the scene where it's a man with no face, or there's one later where Khaleesi is trying to retrieve her dragons and she's circling around and then just disappears and enters in.
1: One of my favorite. Yeah, her backup friends are saying, where'd she go? Where'd she go?
0: Yeah. Again, fantastical in that sense because... As he's welcome in, but this older... Uh, I don't know
1: welcome welcome, but he, he was well, let in. Well, yeah. seemingly
0: welcome. It seems all like he's being welcome. And this guy's very kind of hospitable. He's strange because he's painted red as if he's a part of helium, yes. But he's also wearing all of the ornaments of the Tark, His green I, I say bling,
1: but okay, ornaments, armor.
0: All the Tark bling. And so it's strange, right? He's got his woolas with him, his pet. One of my favorite characters, okay. Absolutely. And, and so he's strange, but he's led into this plant and we discover that's where this old, almost like a monk-like character, like a Tibetan monk or something, he's taking care of this plant, this solo uh, task. Just so, one guy. Amazing. There's two on the poles and they're producing the atmosphere where it becomes livable, which is key in the end. We'll have to come back to that.
1: But so, wait, I have to stop you there. There is a another Movie about Mars that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in. Oh, and Total Recall. Yeah, Total Repo. Yeah, and and that seems they copied that from Edgar Rice Burroughs. That whole idea. I was thinking of that scene where the well, the Arnold, end too. Yeah, the end. Yeah, where they kicked in the the machine, the ancient machine, to save the planet and the people. That so totally fits with Edgar Rice Burroughs because. As far as I can remember, all of the buildings, some of the technology, for sure, that building we're talking about, that terraforms, was all ancient to these people. It was built by the ancients, still working, and we don't know how to build them anymore. That's the idea I got.
0: Yeah, okay. So uh... Using this stuff. I think that's one of the threads or nodes, pathways I'm really interested in exploring here. So I start thinking more about not just Mars, but a lot of times with sci-fi, there is this connection with the ancient world. And there's questions, people legitimately question that here on Earth. Like, what's the History Channel or PBS series of like ancient oh my worlds? God. Yeah, and-
1: they're, they're always drawing connections and at the end of the show you're convinced that we're not alone and they're living among us
0: or they left or they they came here and, and maybe life started through some through aliens or at least they were here a long time ago because we can't explain some of these things and and i think there seems to be some of those elements in in this story perhaps i think that's what you're you're getting at there with the stargate comes to mind yeah portals 100%. and and maybe we find out that's the case with um Yeah, We we mentioned that earlier with the movies, but we didn't mention one of the things that's in the movie that's not in the book are these characters that have some sort of stone. It's a device. Yeah. It's like
1: a compass that will take you to where you want to go. And uh, a super GPS.
0: GPS was maybe something invented here because as he's moving around, he has this directional compass. Yes. So I think that could be an early, maybe the earliest version of some kind of. GPS device. So one of many things that maybe Burroughs created here. This is
1: one reason why I love science fiction. It is the birthplace for these attitudes and devices and feelings that we're not alone and we can expand ourselves. Science fiction is a really positive
0: kind of thing. It's the imagination. I think a lot of these Things that are real are maybe started with a brainchild and the, the imagination of some science fiction writer. Um, definitely. So if I'm a
1: science fiction writer, I should copyright the devices that I talk about in my books. Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> copyright. It was a rabbit hole. OK, so we're in this we're in this plant. And then there's something else that's pretty significant that happens, I think, that becomes a motif of stories about Mars. So he's in this plant and in that moment, I think, realizes or at least reveals to us in the manuscript that he's left behind that he's developed this Martian capacity for telepathy. I I want that. Do you want it? Do you want to know what everyone's thinking at all times? That's always a question, right?
1: If I can turn it on and off, yeah, yeah, I guess.
0: It seems like some can block. I don't know if I'm confusing the movie and the book, but isn't Deja Thoris able to block him from?
1: In the book, they said that because yeah. uh, they were trying to get uh, some information from her. But I, I think really all you have to do is, is cover the top of your head with tinfoil. You're safe. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, bring it into. I don't uh, really believe tin room. Yeah, that just had me thinking about. My mind went to the the boys. I don't know if you've seen that.
1: Yeah, it it's interesting, but it's horrific. It's a horror show.
0: Yeah, it's up there with American Horror Story or something. But no, just the tinfoil image. I think at some point they're in a tinfoil room to try to stop a uh, home. Stop him, yeah. evil Homeland. Superman. So he's able to listen to the thoughts. Of this caretaker of the atmosphere plant and realizes that this caretaker is going to kill him because he doesn't want the secret to get out. So, well, you
1: got to protect the thing that is saving the planet.
0: Yeah, the ancient secret. So he's able to use it to, because he knows this, he's able to hear this. He's able, and at that point, he also tricks the caretaker into explaining the password, the sequence yeah. of, is it numbers? I can't remember that to, in order to get through the, the door. I think it was like
1: musical tones
0: or something. Oh
1: yeah. And yeah, yeah. Right. the doors were a really cool device in, in this story because once they closed, you couldn't tell really that they were doors until the password was given and then it moved back and over. And there was another one that moved back and over mm-hmm. after you said the password again, Two or three of those doors, uh, right. and I thought, "Wow, that's a, an ancient castle kind of
0: you know thing." Yeah, I love that idea. I, I wanted more of that scene. I really enjoyed it. I think that would be a good fan fiction piece or something. Um, yeah, or I don't know, as, as we're talking about, I could visualize like the the Lego set that uh, the atmosphere plants if there were a Lego version of this.
1: One of the tactics for castles was to let the bad guys, the attackers, in through the front door. And then they close the front door and they find themselves in an anti room with another door in front of them. So now they're stuck in this anti room, and the guys who are defending the castle are on ramparts above and just shower them with deadly force. And that's one way to.
0: Yeah, good trick.
1: Yeah, get your attackers. And I was thinking that was the same thing with the multiple doors in this terraform plant.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right, we should probably return briefly. I don't know, grab our transportation device, use our astral, was it astral projection? Just don't make me fall asleep in a cave because I'm not, (laughs) that's not going to happen. Like like with my soporific uh, segue here. Yeah, to go back to the cave and his arrival, I thought that was a, a cool transition. The cool part for me was how we go from the desert of Arizona into this cave, and then he wakes up in a scene that's probably not so different than the desert of Arizona, except it's Mars. It's a different kind of desert. I like that idea. The manuscript is found on Long Island or something, and then we don't go from Long Island to Mars, we go from Arizona to Mars. I thought that worked pretty well. I, I like that too, because it was
1: more of a gentle transition. He didn't know immediately that he was in a different place but very quickly figured it out.
0: And once he arrives, he realized, and that was fun, that he, can't, he couldn't really walk because of the gravity. Like that kind of imagery for me was uh, was some good fun there. realized he could jump, but couldn't walk yeah. without shuffling, yeah. I think, strangely. Yeah. There he meets the Tarks. Yes. what do you think I, of the description I, of those guys? I
1: liked it as they were riding up. I liked how they met, they communicated because, really, that's one of my favorite uh, themes in science fiction is first contact. So I was all over that kind of first meeting there. What's going to happen? Didn't speak the same language like that. I, I like yeah. that it was an equal battle. He had advantages, but so did they.
0: He yeah. jumps so We learned that we get to our first Barsoomium term. Sack. You didn't realize it means a jump. So he sacks in order to escape their attack. And he jumps, what, like 100 feet into the air without even meaning to. Yeah. Which is this you know, super impressive feat. He's, he's a Superman type character there because of this. For sure. And so these aliens are, are green. And they have an extra set of arms. Tusks that curl right from there. They curl up almost in front of their eyes, I, I pictured him in my head a little more. I can't remember that character's name. One of the guards for Jabba the Hutt in Return of the Jedi, those almost yes, okay, boar like boar-like characters. Yes,
1: he, he didn't have a big part, but uh, impressive. I, I remember yeah. that now.
0: That's for how sure. cause I, I picture these guys in, in the movie, they're almost skinny and lanky, and in, in my mind, they were much more Hulkish. Hulk-like figures. Way
1: taller in the story than in the movie.
0: Yeah. It
1: didn't... 12 feet seems a number I heard. 12 feet tall, that's twice the size of a, a person. To battle somebody like that, you would have to have superpowers.
0: Which he does, yeah. A
1: wicked punch.
0: great fighter and powerful is one punch can knock out. And that
1: carries him through the whole story. Each time he bests a a Martian, he receives accolades and honors. That's the vicious, violent society that all of Barsoom is. They're really happy to fight to the death, which is a different concept.
0: This is a way to talk about Burroughs and his portrayals because his portrayal of the other, the non-human, in this case it's non-human, but the non-white characters in his books is so problematic. And I think that's not so different here. He's portraying, I hesitate to use the word kind of savage. It's that kind of portrayal. Yeah, it's
1: thinly veiled for me to read this story. I had to look away. I'm not thinking about Tarzan and I'm just going for the sheer fun ride of it. And we have to talk about this because it is an important part of how literature evolves over time how we evolve over
0: time too in our attitudes you got to read it as an allegory for that which i don't know that i read that it was intended as but clearly some of those elements are there we've got what's her name so sola. so so oh, so yeah. yeah. Her, whose name means alone. She seems to be alone, but she's no noble savage type in, in that sense of in this portrayal that she's the one kind of empathetic, kind hearted Tark who ends up yeah. taking care of him. So what do you yeah. say? I, I like that plot line, though, by the way. I liked, the, I liked her, the idea that she had this, this injustice What was, it, was, was done to her where she's actually the daughter of... And they, they changed this in the movie, too, which I really didn't like this change. Spoiler. It's definitely a spoiler. She's the daughter of Tars Tarkas. Yeah. Now,
1: I like that, too. But in order for that to happen, they broke the rules.
0: Exactly. That was a good exception to this cutthroat culture that lacks, I think, the any sort of Empathy, which I, I think is often a human quality, this capacity for empathy. We find out there are some exceptions with the Tarks, and Sola being one of those who's an anti racist framing. She seems to care more about him and, and an ideal that is beyond which tribe somebody is from or which group. When you say that Sola cares about kindness and, and Carter, regardless of where he's from, whereas so many other people treat him like he's different or the other.
1: I can go along with that. I'm struggling myself with finding out more about racism than I ever knew before and finding out how I use these racist tropes and don't even know it. So I'm trying to rid myself of that and... I'm struggling with this, but there might be something more there.
0: I don't know. I didn't know anything about Edgar Rice Burroughs other than he was a writer that influenced so many other writers. Tarzan's a story that I was exposed to somewhat early. I don't remember through what. Probably, I don't know, seeing some black and white replay on some channel somewhere. I don't know where that first... Entered My World, that story, The Jungle Book, where some human is raised by animals. I guess The Next Generation gets The Lion King. Oh, those are all animals, but it's raised by non-lions, anyway, in that sense. His influence was so great on so many writers. I think as an adult, to come back to him, it was really reading something or listening to Ray Bradbury talk about what he read as a child and what really inspired him. Oh, Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, listen to this.
1: Uh, just a, a quick uh, reference to Wikipedia, which, okay, w- Wikipedia, but The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, references, John Carter, H.P. Lovecraft, War of the Worlds, Heinlein's Number of the Beast. Let's see, Dan Simmons all have references. These authors all, E.E. Dock, they all referenced something from Burroughs' stories. I I got the feeling they were doing him honor.
0: Listen to this from uh, Bradbury. I can't remember where I found this. Probably maybe, might have been Wikipedia as well. But Ray Bradbury said of Burroughs that, quoting here, Edgar Rice Burroughs never would have looked upon himself as a social mover and shaker with social obligations. But as it turns out, and I love to say it because it upsets everyone terribly, Burroughs is probably the most influential writer in the entire history of the world. Whoa. I don't know. By, By giving romance and adventure to a whole generation of boys, Burroughs caused them to go out and decide to become something special. Wow. Yeah. It's high praise.
1: Even Stephen King references Burroughs. So if Stephen King does it, then it's gotta be, it's gotta be good.
0: Yeah, I've got another quote here from Juno uh, Diaz. Princess of Mars, singularly important in that it innovated the grammar for the American version of the lost world of romance. Yeah, pretty. Say that again. I'm trying to understand it. Uh, a Princess uh, of Mars yeah. is singularly important in that it innovated the grammar for the American version of the lost world of romance. This idea that it's taken romantic tales from, I assume, European, maybe other, say, East Asian romances. I think it comes back to that sword.
1: We're pretty uptight society when it comes to romance. We have specific rules. We're pretty conservative, I pretty think.
0: puritanical. Yeah, you'd Puritan- say. Yeah. yeah,
1: there's the word I was looking for.
0: All the yeah glosses over all the nudity, and everybody's naked on this, this foreign planet. Uh, true, yeah.
1: true, except for the bling and the armor that they won from killing others. I was watching a YouTube, and there was this show. I don't know who the author was, but what they do is they colorize really old black and white photos and show you more... The color really does put the portraits to life. Hmm. And there was one of Matahari. I'm thinking that Grace Burroughs, because it was the same time period, was definitely eyeballing Matahari and thinking, wow,
0: that yeah. would be a
1: great Dejah Thoris. She was a spy in okay. one of the world wars. It was early 1900s, it had to be World War I. They put her in front of a, a firing squad at the age of 30. And Famously, she shunned the hood that they wanted to put on her, and and she wouldn't let her hands be bound, and she winked at her. What
0: a story. Her, yeah, I've never heard that one. At the firing we'll squad out. before yeah, they wild. took Winks her life. We got to talk about Woola. <laughs>
1: I have two pugs at home here, and uh, Woola is is Um, definitely pug-like.
0: I thought that was good fun. I like Woola, faithful pet, keeps returning. That was such a sad moment when he sends Woola away, spoiler, reunited, which is wonderful, and uh, saves him a number of times.
1: Yes, the lassie moment was there for Woola. The way that John Carter tamed his horses and his dogs, his animals, was pretty interesting because uh, the author spent time explaining that process because the horse-like
0: creatures that they rode and the right. dog-like creature, the mullah, were all vicious and mean. A brute force there, it's dominating through a kind of empathy yeah. or understanding of the horse, that kindness, which is well, one of the nice things that emerges from this story is that he, he really, in the end, teaches Tars Tarkas friendship. That, yes, that's a great. That was um, a big thing. That's one of the themes that I appreciated. A Lovely story there. One of the things that I didn't like about the movie was because they're immediately sort of friends, and there's this banter, and that was fun. Like I, I loved him. I wish he'd, he'd called him Virginia in the book. I think that's so funny that he's like Virginia. And he keeps called of it that. It's hilarious. But we get this real development yeah. of friendship that's not there. Like they're full of animosity early on in the book. And by the end of the book, they're sacrificing each other's, their lives for the other. They neither perish, but they're willing to do it. There's a willingness there. Right. I just think that's... Uh, Jumped into the fight uh, to, you know, defend. It's so uplifting that he would bring the human notions of empathy, sacrifice, friendship, and help change this other tribe in that, that positive way. That was nice. I'm just thinking, did we say all we want to say about Burroughs as an author, skip the eugenics thing. Let's not dwell on. Yeah. That. For now, <laughs> I think, I think. Yeah. An advocate for that. But we've, we've talked about this in season one, too, the, uh, so challenging. I read the Gutenberg version, the Project Gutenberg. This is not under copyright anymore, so I didn't I haven't paid for it. He's long gone, and this work, yeah, unlike yeah. some later ones, doesn't quite get into that. Only in an allegorical kind of sense, perhaps it seems unintended. He was really happy for euthanizing people who were potentially different. He was worried about the people inheriting traits that were, say, considered less desirable by some. The same kind of thing that the Nazis were in. He was an advocate. That
1: is a theme that comes up more often than I would like to even read about because it's history and people still believe in this. And we have to talk about it. Here in the United States, the immigrants that come in illegally while they're in process or incarceration, they have had operations performed on them that aren't defined as it
0: comes back to this eugenics, but certainly ways in which you could fit treat. the definition. I guess the other with some sort of dignity or, or respect under the moon of Mars. There's a whole bunch of books here which I, I'm going to keep reading. I, I want to. I'm going to read these I, down again. Yeah, just to escape. Yes. I would hope that today in the world we live in, especially given the changes in climate change, that we would say to ourselves, "Okay, let's." And I say ourselves as like a middle-aged white who definitely understands, like at this point that. I don't know that the way that we're doing things, <laughs> the, the kind of white Western civilization that is, is at least portrayed in media and in the world as the way, the way of life, it's not sustainable. This destroys the earth. I guess what I'm getting to is when there's a portrayal of indigenous or native kind of populations then there's a way to look at and celebrate the ways of living that are different from our own. And there's so much to learn from those groups. I don't know if there's a lot of that in princess of Mars. I think there's some of that in say avatar, but if we don't know that if Edgar Rice Burroughs was, let's say he was four years old today, I don't think he published this until he was like late thirties or something, right. Around 40. If, if he were that age today, Would he think the same way and publish the same kind of piece? I don't think it would be exactly the same. Probably not.
1: That's a really good way to look at it. To be clear, I don't think either one of us are making any excuses for just long thinking, even if it's 100 years ago. We're changed now, and we know better. I think what you're saying is if Burroughs was, if he went into a cave and was transported into the future. Oh, um, well, that's...
0: Yeah, I think if you were, oh, that's a good good point. I think he would probably, this is huge speculation here, but it seems like he would find a place today in which he could find a home for it in some websites and whatnot where he could publish probably more easily today. If he, he could publish himself, he wouldn't. The LA Times would not stop the publication of his problematic thoughts if he were to be teleported to today as he was at that age. But what I'm saying is not to excuse, just trying to be conscious of the context and to be critical of the ideas and him, not as an excuse, but just to say, have some sort of empathy that if he were raised today, could turn out differently. He grew up in Chicago, I think Oak Park, and then moved to LA. Uh, yeah. And every place has all types of people, but the chances of him holding some of those same views are would be much slimmer today I think than they would have been.
1: There's the thought if he was in this modern culture would he be yeah. as influential? Well, and, and
0: exactly so that's the ingenious part I mean, of it. He, right? he, he, he got, got was, in on the ground floor. Uh, he was working as a pencil sharpener salesman I think salesperson. He's reading at that time. It I, I didn't know that but I love century. that. It's the, the, there's really this, this, this great production of Pulp Fiction, these kind of magazines, and this cheap paper, right, it's is, is readily available, and he's reading these kind of stories that are not plot-heavy, cliffhangers to the next one. This is certainly a Wild West-type story. So he's reading this stuff. There's no indication he was even writing at all before that, and he just says to himself, I, I could write some of these. And, and I love this little bit because he felt like it might be embarrassing to write this type of work is published in serial form. So, which makes sense when you read it. It reads like this kind of travelogue, this happened and this happened. And, and yes. he publishes it. He submitted it under the name. What he wrote exactly. was uh, that the, his pseudonym was Normal Bean. Normal Bean, because that was just like an everyman's type uh, story. And the publisher either thought it was a mistake or a typo, and they published it under Norman Bean. So yeah, the serial is published under that. And then it was so popular that they published it as a novel in 2011. It was super successful after that. I mean, everything you wrote was basically published. Tarzan was huge after that, which I'm just not even that familiar with. I've never read it. I think I saw the old film. I never, I think a movie version came out, what, a decade, 15 years ago? Didn't it? Wasn't there another Tarzan version or something?
1: Way different than the early movies. Way different. It was in your face. Uh, I've never seen it or read it. uh, Racist idea. I want to bring us back to the planet. One of the scenes that I really liked was the now dried up seabeds are covered with this soft mossy kind of stuff that covers the whole planet. The Tharks
0: move
1: in huge numbers, like thousands of Tharks, with their horse-like thoats that are attached to chariots and then ridden as just solo horses. This whole parade silently moves across the desert in the night because they don't want anyone else to see. Otherwise, they have to have this massive battle and thousands of people will, or Martians, will die. I'm just going to read this little part. The enormous broad tires of the chariots and the padded feet of the animals brought forth no sound from the moss-covered sea bottom. And so we moved in utter silence, like some huge phantasmagoria, except when the stillness was broken by the guttural growling of a goaded zitar or the squealing of fighting thoats. The green Martians converse but little and then usually in monosyllables, yeah. low of distant.
0: Yeah, time. it's really some beautiful writing there. We're
1: on the planet.
0: I, I felt like I was there.
1: Yeah, his writing was a little hard to read because he has the syntax of the age, the time. Yeah, I think. This must be the I way agree. people I, thought or talked or you know, at least wrote yeah. examples of it. I verily, okay, who used verily? I verily believe that a man's way with women is inverse ratio to his prowess.
0: I felt that way too. It really had echoes for me of other Victorian, There's this is early 20th century. It's not Victorian, but I think it, it almost feels like a, a last gasp of that style to me. It reminded me of, Say, you mentioned H.G. Wells and the time machine, where we get this sort of a kind of witness like storytelling. You won't believe what happened to me. But they tell you this whole story, and it's full of very first person, full of lots of adverbs and judgments, but just fun to go on the ride with that person to that, whatever it might be. Yeah, whether it's the future in. The Time Machine, or Barsoom sure. here with uh, Princess of Mars.
1: Barsoom.
0: In your investigation of
1: the Burroughs, he, was he the well, first? Well, I think he was
0: the first... To write a story in which he created his own vocabulary. Like we mentioned Kaur and sack I think those words came up. And there weren't that many in this book, but apparently in a later book, it might even be the sequel, The Gods of Mars, there's a whole section where he includes a whole glossary with the vocabulary from a Barsoomian vocabulary. Pretty amazing. I think that's such, such so, so many books. From Token did that, and I don't know, I think of Clockwork Orange or there's so many nineteen eighty-four books where authors have done that. For this to be the first is pretty amazing. Oh, oh yeah.
1: And the Star Trek series where Klingon Worf was a Klingon, and there are people who go to the Comic Con that would be good uh, fun conventions. Yeah.
0: That, I, would you say Klingon's a beautiful language? I don't think it's supposed no. to be a,
1: not a beautiful race. Oh, well,
0: it's very talk like.
1: Absolutely. If this book was written in this modern day right. and more popular,
0: yeah, I could, now I could envision, would be speaking Bar Sumian. Um, if I know you like the movie, but you know, two thumbs down for me. But if, if they'd gone about that in a different way, like we've got the whole <sighs> Marvel universe, it seems like this whole Burroughs world building in A Princess of Mars could be ripe for uh, all kinds of series. That's one of the the things I love about growing up or being alive today, just in terms of storytelling and mass media. Aren't we lucky to have this sort of long form series or these enclosed series where we can have really amazing movie-like quality series, but it just stretches out these stories and allows us to dig in a deeper kind of fun way. The Mandalorian, man, it's really similar oh, to the Mandalorian. Oh, totally, I think. In that you get this. Okay, yeah. Imagine the, the, instead of the movie version that we got, what if we got the Mandalorian version of a Princess of Mars? Oh, that that would be amazing. I was trying to think of what this is like in my head. I think that's it. It's not Baby Yoda. <laughs> it's uh, it's Deja Thoris. The is this Wild West uh, story. And, and let me
1: jump in. John Cotter from the Civil War, he is from the South. They lost, but he still holds those values dear. Similarly, in the Mandalorian...
0: Right. It's more like the, the Bushido warrior code or the Knights of the Round Table of protecting this warrior mentality yeah, of... Exactly. of, yeah. of honor and duty and chivalry and stuff like that, that kind of idea. So yeah, I like that connection. Yeah, it totally works. And also there's comedic elements in the Mandalorian and there's all these comedic elements here with the John Carter character where he bumbles through some things.
1: Right? I think that's where the dog um, saves him every time.
0: Woola is a little bit like that Yoda character. So, and maybe in John Carter, you've got the we've got Woola and a princess, and this princess Dejah Thoris, who both work in place of the Baby Yoda character. I think maybe Jean Favreau was a little influenced by Burroughs here. He probably read *The Princess of Mars* as a kid.
1: Oh yeah, there is another quote I want to read, and it sums up part of the plot here. John Carter has made a proposal. He said, addressing the council which meets with my sanction. I shall put it to you briefly. Dejah Thoris, the princess of Helium, who was our prisoner, is now held by the Jeddak of Zandaga, whose son she must wed okay. to save her country from devastation at the hands of the zandangan forces. I, I think for purposes of clarity, the author burrows gives us a little summary. If we didn't catch that, if we didn't know what was going on, this told us. I thought it was right. a nice little, yeah. like... Yeah, oh, I think okay. I think
0: plot-wise... If I didn't gotta, get it, now I got it. In the book, again, <laughs> I felt like the movie had a lot of problems pro- plot-wise. But like you, I think you said, I was trying to combine several movies together in a way. I think it's just always... It's a, several a, books into one book. movie. It's yeah. so hard to be successful at doing that. I don't know if I can think of any examples of several, yeah, books going into one movie and that working out very well plot-wise.
1: Yeah, because you're always going to miss something.
0: Bradbury speaks to this with, uh, we'll talk about which one we're reading next. I know we've got Martian Chronicles on our list, and his is also a very imaginative kind of version of this. So beautifully written. Just to grow up in an early 20th century where you think that there could be life on Mars. It must have been so (laughs) fun to imagine that. Oh my God, the canals of Mars, that has to happen. Oh.
1: And then they have structures that, you know, or mountains or whatever that look like structures. Right. And that uh, was we're digging me, on Mars.
0: Like segue there is this all started with this Italian astronomer, Giovanni Schiaparelli, who, when he looked, he saw that there were these sort of—it's almost like looking through a, a microscope. These little hair-like, hair-like, you know, excuse me, structures or something. So he uses the Italian yeah, word—the roads, the canals—they uh, got to go somewhere. Who, right? who, who who's, which who's there to is use the them. plural? And it was mistranslated as canals because canali looks like canals, whereas and so people thought when they think canals, they think of little streams of water. Whereas what he was really trying to say was channels, that they were like these kind of, which is not necessarily full of water, these certain channels. I forget, the there's the, some American astronomer like Lowell, I think was his last name, I can't remember his first name. Yeah. He's the one that kind of disseminates this idea in the the U.S. and people begin to imagine this flourishing life there of these aliens living with these canals of water. Pretty interesting. Yeah, it's not clear where he came up with the yeah. Green Men. There weren't a lot of things published around there. Yeah. So it, it seems like much of this was his own imagination. There's these green aliens that we meet. There's the red people that are very human-like, whatever, their skin is red. That was one other thing in the movie that I, I didn't quite like, where in my mind, I pictured Deja Thoris, because I just couldn't remember the movie when I read this. I fell asleep in a Beijing theater when I was watching this. It was a plot that was, so the, it was such a schizophrenic the plot it was slow and it's yes, full of this action I just felt so bored by it but anyway mostly because i didn't care it wasn't set up in a way that made me care about the characters whereas i cared about john carter here i cared about deja thoris and i was curious about it i, I wanted the slow reveal of things but anyway i i was hoping that it would be like deja thoris would be i don't, I don't know her name in guardians of the, of the galaxy who's green I I can't. I can't recall. uh, Oh yeah, right now, but yeah, um, that's who you're talking about. This really beautiful woman who happened to be red in the film. She's got like some kind of red tribalish tattoos on her, and and she's not red. Like she's supposed to be red. Come on.
1: (laughs) We've given somebody a lot of uh, ideas for a a remake into a series. I think.
0: Uh, Anything else you're kind of left with here? Honestly.
1: I think we've talked a, a lot about this story and author, but ultimately it is just pulp fiction.
0: It's a fun ride. Yeah.
1: With absolutely.
0: Yeah. Bits that um, make you think. Do we want to come back to the ending and then he ends up, spoiler alert? I don't know if you've got any cocktail chatter. We need to rename that dram chatter when you're sipping your we haven't read a brave new world but what is it what's what do they what's what do they take there a dram oh no oh, what are okay. they drinking yeah. this in this new book i feel like there were a few things there i don't know if i noted it i don't know when you're when your sorak is sitting on your lap and you're sipping your barsoomian cocktail what are you gonna be What are you gonna be talking about What what's on your mind okay
1: yeah, if that was me i'd be talking about this crazy white guy who
0: Which one? made
1: a lot of noise on the planet, and then just know what? Jeff Bezos, or where did he go?
0: What happened? rocket?
1: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, did you see
0: that NASA? That Na- NASA is came out and said they're not really quite astronauts. <sighs> um, yeah, I got mixed feelings about that. It requires some cognitive dissonance for me because I, as somebody who grew up and had that little kid dream of being a, want to be an astronaut until I realized you you couldn't do that if you were over like five seven or something. There's a size issue there. Although maybe in a private uh, rocket, but you can. Yeah, like NASA. a roller coaster ride. Um, and so you had to be under <laughs> like five seven or five eight or something like that. I don't know if that's changed, but that was uh, definitely the case. Uh, I did not know that. I think definitely it's like twentieth century. But anyway, okay, so amazing. Going to space travel, love the idea. I, I, I mean, I love that. It was amazing. One rocket ride could alleviate poverty for every impoverished person in the United States. And what's he doing with his money? He's taking a joyride to space. Okay, okay. I've there, heard there have that have before. But you don't have That's to That's the attitude. You space, can't do two right? things I at mean, once. I'd like to think if I had... But you can't. Uh, that he could do both. Let's say that. I mean, he's got enough money. I'm so increasingly concerned with our own planet. I don't think moving to Mars and do a oh, deeper dive really? into, Mars and <laughs> into it. This is not, as I'm sure we'll see when we finally get to the Martian. This is not an inhabitable planet. If our solution, our best solution for our ailing planet is to go to Mars, life is clearly potentially so much better here on Earth. Let's fix this problem. I want to continue to explore space and try to make contact with aliens and all that or or at the risk of our annihilation. But let's do that. Let's just be a little better here in the meantime. Life death, Sci-Fi.